You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Miguel Pereira about Bayesian approaches in early clinical research. So stay tuned for a really, really nice episode. And now some music. Miguel has done a lot of research in this area and has also a lot of applied knowledge. So he's the perfect person to talk about this topic. And we are not just talking about this topic in this podcast episode, but he will also be a presenter at the Effective Statistician Conference that happens on April 25th of 2023. This five-hour conference will feature lots of speakers beyond uh, Miguel. We'll have about 10 presenters that speak for about 15 to 20 minutes plus Q&A. And so you will have a lot of opportunity to interact with the different presenters and ask your questions. And it will be quite a nice thing, not so kind of boring with lots of lots of long presentations, but more kind of shorter presentations so people can stay engaged. And yeah, especially for these virtual ones, it's a, it will be a lively thing. So stay tuned and register for this conference. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading, promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. Today I have Miguel with me as an expert in Bayesian statistics for early clinical research and will speak specifically about oncology today. That's definitely an area where I'm have only a little bit of insight, so I'll be learning a lot today as well. Hi, Miguel. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? Doing well. Thank you. Very good. So maybe for those who don't know you, maybe you can introduce yourself first. Uh, yes. So my name is Miguel. I'm based in Cambridge, UK. And I at the moment, I work as a statistical consultant for a company called Cogitars, which is based in Germany. And we provide consulting services mostly in the design of Bayesian clinical trials in early clinical development. We don't just do Bayesian statistics, but that's the main focus of the company. Yeah. And we actually had Oliver on the podcast already at least once, probably more than 100 episodes ago. So if you <laughs> go back, we talked about working for big companies, for small companies, for CRO, and being a freelancer. And, and now he's growing his own business, Cogitas, which is great to work with. It's a great consulting organization, especially in that area. And that can help. Quite yes. A lot. And the focus is not just on providing services, which would be the main focus of CROs. It's not to be, our focus is not to be a CRO, but to provide expertise in novel statistical methodology and in developing novel methods for novel designs, because drugs are different and have different requirements. And that's our main focus. 
Yeah, and I know that you also do quite a lot of actually CRO oversight work for... Um, yes, that is correct. Yeah. When we work with, with clients, we partner almost as their statisticians, in-house statisticians, as we were their in-house statisticians, and we work uh, with CROs and try to articulate the interaction between the client, what we're doing, and the CRO. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about early phase development, and specifically we'll focus today on oncology. What are the typical questions that come along? So in early phase of development, and this is something that goes pretty much across the board, regardless of whether we're talking about oncology or any other other area, it's mostly about safety. We want to, we're talking about first in human trials usually. So phase eight, we want to know what is, we want to find what is the highest level in general of a drug that is still considered safe in clinical, in humans. So part of it is how can we define the maximum acceptable dose or MTD, maximum tolerated dose, while keeping the patient safe. There is one thing which is particular of oncology, and which I would say specifically of oncology, which is usually we are the first in human trials are in people that have cancer and not in healthy subjects as in other areas, yeah. which were a phase one trial would be in healthy individuals because we're effectively not that interested in efficacy yet, but we are interested in safety. And an interesting thing that comes also comes from that is that we are not only treating people that are ill, because we are treating people that are ill, we also want to reduce the amount of subjects that are exposed to subtherapeutic levels of a drug. Yeah. Uh, because if we're talking about the drug that could change the landscape of that disease, we don't want to, we want to make sure that these people are also benefiting from it because usually they are late stage patients that don't have many choices in terms of treatment because they've basically exhausted all the lines of treatment that they had. Yeah. And it's also, especially when you think about oncology, lots of these indications are rare diseases. And that's another reason why you usually want to restrict your number of patients because it can take forever to recruit lots of patients. So when we think about this and we want to understand, okay, what is maximum tolerated dose? How is that traditionally? So the most traditional design, and this is a design that is stick to oncology, is the three plus three design. Which and it's extremely easy, and most a lot of people listening to this will recognize what it is, but it can be explained in 30 seconds. So in a trial, you enroll patients at the first dose level, you, you enroll three patients, record the number of dose-limiting toxicities or DLTs, usually grade three is what we're aiming for, and we see how many DLTs occurred in a cohort of three. If zero DLTs occur, we can escalate to the next dose level. If two, if one DLT occurs, we should enroll and expand on that, and we'll have three more patients at that dose level, meaning we have six, and we detect whether we have DLTs or not. And if two or three DLTs occur, we, we stop at that dose level. And this is a very simple design. And it's so simple that I've just explained it to you, and you don't have to be a statistician to understand it. It is anyone can understand and implement it. You stay at the same dose. Imagine you have three patients, one of these has a DLT, and then you enroll three further on the same dose, and then none of these have a DLT. Then you would still go to the next dose? Yeah, so then if you have one out, which would mean if you enroll these three, you would have one out of six, because you recorded one in the first cohort and none in the second three-patient cohort. And so one out of six would be you can escalate to the next dose level. And effectively, the cohort sizes are is essentially three or six. Okay. out of. That's why it's called the three plus three, because three is the baseline or the normal cohort size, and then eventually might expand to a more a three more, which would be the six, so three plus three. Okay, and if you have two or three... In the first step set, get it, then you directly stop there and see you have reached your, no, well, one yeah, step MTD. beyond. 
<laughs> the maximum exactly. Value. So you, exactly, you would say oh, this is the MTD. We cannot go more, or so we cannot continue the dose escalation. And this is the maximum dose that we are going to give these patients in, say, phase one, phase two trial, or eventually in another in another expansion cohort that is outside of this three plus three design. And you mentioned grade three toxicities for those people that are not working in oncology. In oncology, you don't have the typical kind of severe and serious adverse events, you have toxicities and all the different... Oh, no, you, also, you also consider severe in treatment associated adverse events, but you could see you have a grade toxicities that go, goes from one to four. Mm-hmm. And usually in its effect, it has to do with either the duration or the severity of a certain symptom. It could be a headache. So if you have a mild headache for three hours after you've taken the drug, that would most likely be considered a grade one adverse event. But then if you have, say, an immune reaction to a compound, and for some reason you had almost cardiac arrest, or you had to stay in hospital for 24 hours under observation, and a special treatment has to be administered, you most likely go into the realm of the grade three or grade four. However, it's not very hard to get into a grade three, because if it's something that already, in some cases, if it's something that already interferes with your daily life in a significant manner, in some cases, that could be considered a grade three. So okay. it, there is, I don't know off the top of my head what are the full criteria for a grade three, but they are fairly well defined in terms of intensity and severity. Yeah. How long is the follow-up time usually to check for these toxicities? So that is uh, depends essentially on the drug being administered. That decision is usually made by the medical team or by the clinicians that say for this specific drug, given the regimen or the number of cycles that are being administered, this being in a chemotherapy G-related setting, that depends on more on the clinical decision rather than a standard follow-up period. So you could have, we could have a follow-up period of say three days, but we could also have a follow-up period of say 21 days or seven days after the last administration. So in, for example, let's say we have a cycle of three administrations of a drug, which in there administered once every week. So this could be a period of 21 to 28 days, according to what the follow-up is, where we give the first administration and we record if there are any DLTs. Second administration, we record if there are any DLTs. Third administration, we record if there are any DLTs. So this would be a 21-day regimen, for example. Okay. And when you then check for these DLTs, so basically you need to basically have a database log after each of these steps where you get all the information in, do the analysis, check for these things, and then you have... You don't necessarily need a database... You don't need necessarily the database lock because usually you do the database lock when you're doing a more the final analysis or an interim analysis. So in this case, it depends on how the assessment of DLTs is done and the dose escalation meetings occur. Okay. If, for example, we have a certain drug where a patient comes in, is given a certain drug, it is a patient's assessed for seven days after or the mm-hmm. cohort is assessed for seven days, we could potentially have a dose escalation meeting at the end of those seven days, and we would decide whether we escalate or do not escalate. We, that is something specific of these dose escalation trials where you need to get the data, analyze the data, and make a decision, and then continue, decide whether you do escalate okay. or don't escalate. Okay. And in a way, that's why this the 3 plus 3 design, which has many limitations, but it's very useful because... If you just know the clinicians have been observing the patients, so they know the number of DLTs and they just know whether they can escalate or not, the amount of statistical work is minuscule. Yeah. If Yeah, you just need to make sure that you have all your data in place. Yeah, so it's, it's, exactly. Yeah. Okay, very good. Let's talk a little bit about, you just said it's pretty simple and easy, but what are the limitations of it? 
yes, everything tends to be a trade-off. Of course, you trade simplicity for this case, less accuracy, less flexibility, and effectively, this I call with simplicity as well comes many the limitation of not being able to do things like you are stuck with the dose levels you have. So if you had defined five dose levels at the beginning of your trial, those are the dose levels you're going to assess. If for some reason you think, oh, perhaps the last dose level or the second to last dose level might be a bit too much, you cannot just go and say, oh, we're just going to reduce that dose. You don't have mm-hmm. that flexibility. Also, your cohort sizes are three plus three. You mm-hmm. cannot do four, you cannot do two, you cannot do seven. And mm-hmm. that's usually a thing that clinicians have a hard time understanding because the reason why it's three plus three is because we're targeting a certain proportion of DLTs that come from the fact that it's three because yeah. one out of three is a third uh, and one out of six is about 16.7%. And these DLT rates are what we are usually, are the ones that are usually accepted in oncology. So our targeting rate would be about 30 to 33% of acceptable grade three DLT rate for a cancer drug. So the three plus three is completely fixed. Clinicians have a really hard time understanding that. And on top of that, we have, so we've talked about inflexibility, being stuck with the same dose levels. We also have the fact that it's less accurate. In general, the targeting rate of a three plus three design, meaning the if you do a simulation, the proportion of trials or the percentage of trials that get it right, to get the MTD right, is 35 to 40%. So this is just more a little bit more than a third of trials get it right. So if we talk about accuracy here, what exactly is accuracy here? So in this case, accuracy in or in the targeting rate is how many times in a trial or when you're simulating trials, how many times do you get the right MTD? Okay. If you think if you assume of these five MTDs that you set, yeah, and you say, okay, you basically no, okay, this one is the right one out of these five. In about third, you get exactly that right one. And in the other cases, you would get a higher or a lower one. Correct, yeah. Okay. And for example, and I was doing just doing some calculations. And if, for example, the real MTD, sorry, the real DLT rate is 0.5. So if at those level, you have a 50% chance of having a grade 3 DLT, which is very high and way above what you would accept, you have an 11% chance of escalating. Okay. So where, so you should not only stop because it's already too high, it could, in 11% of the cases, so if you simulate 100 trials, in 11 trials, you escalate. So you are, and effectively would be, presumably the next dose would be considered to be toxic and you would stop there, but you would be declaring an MTD that is too toxic. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, you can be unlucky and you could go to the first dose level, everything's fine, second dose level, and you observe two DLTs just because you were unlucky. And you're done. And the drug does not get you, and you cannot test other dose levels. So it, in a way, it can go to effectively it's bad both ways because you can be taking dose level that is too toxic for a phase two trial, or you might not even do a phase two trial. You might just kill the drug because you didn't, you were able to escalate to a level that where you can see some efficacy. Okay, very good. That makes a lot of sense. And I think as statisticians, you can really easily see these kind of limitations. I would say one of the biggest limitations is that that it's really difficult to pick in between. Because if you think about, if you think about it, probably there's some kind of curve. And you probably want to get to close to it as possible, isn't it? 
And in fact, that brings me to another limitation of the three plus three, which is it's algorithmic, meaning you have those rules and you can, there's no flexibility around that. And also when you look at those level, you are just looking at that information. You don't care about what happened before mm-hmm. at all. So for example, let's say you reach the third dose level and in the first dose, you didn't see anything. The second dose, you didn't see anything. And now you see two DLTs. It's very different from a trial where you, the first dose level, you won DLT, you expanded, etc. cetera, you, but you were able to escalate. The second dose level, you see another DLT, you expanded, but you, were man- you managed to escalate, and now you see two DLTs. If you look at the history behind it, those are two very different scenarios, which the 3 plus 3 design completely ignores. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you have, at the next dose level, the first two DLTs, you can more likely assume that maybe you could go further. Whereas if you have, as you said, in the second scenario, described already two DLTs as two different lower dose levels, then it's just from a maximum likelihood perspective, I would say it's much more likely that you have reached your MTD. Exactly. Yeah, very good. That makes a lot of sense. So let's bring in base now. Base seems to be one of the really nice things that help us to be much more flexible and bring in some modeling and these kind of things. How does that work with Fusion Bayesian yeah. approaches here? I guess first thing is, and that's one of the things I like about Bayesian, I find it, and this is not specific to clinical trials, just Bayesian statistics as a framework and or as a school in statistics. I find it a lot more intuitive, not mm. just to me as someone who does statistics, but also to what I work with clinicians. And instead, in the beginning, originally I studied medicine, so I have a medical background, and that's the way I think. For me, thinking sometimes about p-value, it's very convoluted when you're thinking about it. <laughs> Whereas with Bayesian, and yeah, some, I can ask sometimes questions to people that know a lot about statistics, and they don't know the definition of a, a proper definition of a p-value because when you think about it, it's not intuitive. And with Bayesian in general, I find that things are a lot more intuitive and it's more in line with the way our brains work in the sense that we, as people in our decision-making about whether we go shopping right now because it does, it's sunny, so it's not going to rain, we just assess probabilities and not in a formal way, but informally we are assessing probabilities. And that's what Bayesian formalizes in a mathematical way is probabilities in, in, with the use of probability distributions. And that's why for me, then moving to doing work in statistics in general, and now in clinical trials, using Bayesian statistics is what I feel is natural. And on top of that, because we're talking about probabilistic um, decision-making, we, it's, we know that's the ba- biggest advantage of statistics. We can include prior information. Yeah, I think that is a real nice thing. As I said, that basically exactly. you build build on the information as you collect it. So as you just mentioned, we'll see you learn something on the first step, you learn something on the second step, you maybe go into the experiment with other knowledge about similar compounds or from maybe some tox studies or whatsoever. And you could and- leverage that, yeah. And effectively, because we are working in a phase one, mostly in a phase one setting or phase one, two settings, we, our sample sizes are very small. And in order for us to have what we would call statistic, enough statistical power, we need to leverage prior information in order to be able to make good inference. And with this, I'm not implying that we cheat because we have a lot of, because a lot of people say you can use prior information so you can influence your final result by using a heavy prior that will just overshadow the data. I, 
we definitely don't do that. And we have a lot of ways of working around that to make sure that the prior is not influencing the data in a biased manner. Yeah, well, it's a little bit of a philosophical question. Yeah. If you put a lot of emphasis on your prior, you need to have a lot of belief that it's correct or a lot of evidence that it's correct. And if you say, if you're borderline, it looks like we are pretty close. We just need a little bit more evidence. Then, of course, your additional study doesn't need to be super big. Whereas you start with nothing and you don't have no clue of what's really going to happen. Then, of course, your study needs to be much bigger. In the use of of prior information, it doesn't have to be very informative. And uh, the example I like to give when people come with this argument is, okay, if I ask you what is to estimate the prevalence of a disease, a disease, let's say, what is the prevalence of, let's think of something like during COVID times, what was the prevalence, let's forget about incidents, prevalence at any given period of COVID, which at some point was between 20, 10 and 20%. The use of prior information can just be, I know that it's less than 50. And I don't, I'm not saying it's between 10 and 20, just I know for a fact, or I'm very sure, I don't know for a fact, but I'm very sure that it's less than 50. So this is a way of incorporating prior information, which everyone would find, I'd say, reasonable, which would not, which would increase our statistical power and our ability to make inference without biasing the data. Yeah, completely agree. That's a good, that's a good, good example. Okay, very good. Now, if we apply these new Bayesian approaches, what kind of flexibility do they give us? Yes. So I think in, there are multiple ways of applying Bayesian statistics to trials. And but given that we talked about the three plus three, and we, what we usually use in the case of those escalation trial is a model-based approach or a Bayesian model-based approach, where effectively we do a logistic regression model where we are modeling the probability of a DLT, mm-hmm. and that probability of a DLT is a function of an intercept and a dose. And effectively, so if we think alpha plus beta times those, our beta parameter, that's what we want to estimate as being our, the DLT rate associated, or our beta parameter is what we call the toxicity associated to a certain dose. And that is what we are estimating in our model. And in terms of flexibility things, one is this being a model-based approach and this being a regression model, one, we can make predictions as to what will happen in the future. So I observed the first three dose levels, and this is one of the advantages is we're taking into account the entire history, the entire data that's been observed. We can estimate the probability of DLT at uh, the next dose level without mm-hmm. having observed it. And of course, we have a certain, the way we're doing this is we have a probabilistic decision rule where we say specifically for cancer trials, we our targeting rate or we want a DLT rate which is less than 33%. So we ideally a DLT rate which is between 16.7 and 33.3%. And the way we decide is if the posterior distribution of the DLT rate, or so if you look at distribution, the probability that the DLT rate is greater than 33% is greater than 25%, we stop. So effectively, and I know this is, I'll repeat this because it's this statement is complicated to understand in itself. Essentially, I look at the density of my distribution of the DLT rate. If the density set at 33, between 33 and 1, so the right-hand side of my distribution, if that is more than 25%. Yeah, if under in this density is also more than 25% of the density 
is beyond satisfaction. Exactly. It's great. Yeah. It is above 33%. Then we stop at that dose level. Or we, we stop at that dose level because that's already considered too toxic. Or we don't escalate because that's what we obtain when we run the, our model for the next dose level. Okay. So I, I, that's how we do our make our decision. And if, this is what is usually done in, onco- in the oncology setting. But for example, in other settings, we've used different ways of doing this decision rule, which could be 50%. And obviously will not be 33. It could be 20 or it could be 50 depends on the setting, the drug, and what we're modeling. But this is the way we apply Bayesian statistics to a, a Bayesian statistic or a logistic regression model to the dose escalation setting. And going back to what you mentioned in terms of flexibility, even though we can have preset dose levels, because we're doing a model that considers a continuous scale for the dose, we can effectively test any dose. So if I say that if I go, if I've observed 10, 20, and 30 grams of a drug, and I make my predictions to 40, and it's telling me that 40, I can escalate from 30, but 40 is too much. You can also do all the predictions for everything between 30 and 40. Exactly. So I could say, oh, let me try 35. Oh, 35. I could, my model is telling me that I can escalate to 35. And so I would try 35. And that's where a lot of the flexibility comes from, because effectively in our, effectively in our trial, when we're designing the trial, we don't really need to declare all the dose levels we're going to test. We can say these are the ones we're going to test in principle, but we can define intermediate dose levels according to a certain set of criteria. Or you can just say that our increments will never exceed a certain amount. And this is beca- the reason is because if we are making predictions in a linear regression, yeah, model, you want to have predict a little bit of a safety margin. Yeah. Yeah. As we know, if you if you observe between ten and thirty, you're not going to make prediction accurate predictions for sixty <laughs> because yeah, yeah. it just doesn't make sense. But if we have that, with how much we can escalate, in, then we can make predictions and define what would be an optimal. In theory, define what would be an optimal dose level. Yeah, yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And you could also. Go back to an intermediate, isn't it? So if you, let's say, if you go to from 30 to 38, and then you see, oh, that is too toxic, you could also go back to something like 35. Exactly. These models allow us to de-escalate, which the 3 plus 3 doesn't. So the 3 plus 3, it's a one-direction model. And with the BRM, we can, we're not just escalating, but we can de-escalate. Or in, of course, like the 3 plus 3, we can stop at a certain dose level and do an expansion cohort to gather more information and then make a decision whether we want to try those levels that are higher or lower. So in that sense, there is complete flexibility. And in effect, we were just including all the information in our trial. Also with the advantage, because we are using a Bayesian setting, we are not doing any hypothesis tests. So we're just, it's, it's continual assessment of what is going on. Yeah, yeah it's much more of an estimation topic rather than a testing topic. Correct, yeah. exactly. Which really is the origin of the problem. Yeah, you don't want to test the MTD, you want to estimate the STD. If you also mentioned you can be more flexible with a number of patients. So you could have instead mm-hmm. of three, you could have, I guess one is probably not a good solution, but a two or four or five. Yeah, so effectively we can use any number of patients in the model because we've got a prior and we're just adding information to that prior. Technically speaking, in Bayesian, you would you were doing an interim analysis every time you observe a patient because you can make you just adding yeah. more information to your model. Of course, that's not ideal. We don't want to do that. But you could say, for example, that the first two or three dose levels, because they are really low, you enroll less patients, say mm-hmm. one to three patients. But then in the higher dose levels, you start enrolling more patients. So say three to six. And you don't need to be, it doesn't have to be three. 
or six, it can be three, four, five, six. It doesn't matter because effectively you are just collecting more and more information and just enriching the amount of information you have about that drug at different dose levels. Yeah, where you get faster to the higher levels where you want to get to. So you exactly. jump over the initial, hopefully the initial kind of lower levels that you just set for safety faster. And especially with these probably more rare diseases, that is really important. Even not being rare diseases, if you're common cancers, say colon cancer or lung cancer, which are very common, you by using less patients in the first cohorts, you are reducing the number of patients that are being helped. For sure, that's the other thing. Essex is for sure another topic. Just what was going from the, let's say, more operational point of view. Okay, very good. Now, you mentioned at the beginning with these three plus three designs, the beauty is its simplicity. Now, what you just described obviously is everything but simple. At least it's simple <laughs> as you explained it, but I'm pretty sure if you implement it, that doesn't look simple. Yes, I would say it's three plus three. It's as simple as we've talked about, and there's not much more than people haven't heard about it that we haven't exp- we haven't mentioned here. It's really easy to understand and know every, pretty much everything there is to know about it. But with Bayesian, of course, you need more training. You need to know a bit more about Bayesian statistics and how it's implemented. And our two slash three challenges with Bayesian statistics, which I don't think it's about understanding because, as I said, I think it's very intuitive, but it pertains to, well, the programming itself. It, essentially, we are talking about using somehow specific, more specific or more niche types of programming, which involve using other JAGs or STAN and previously win bugs. So yeah. the model coding is has got a specific syntax, which adds to what you need to know. Mm-hmm. And that was also on top of the coding, because we are using, in order to assess the operating characteristics, and we need to test some scenarios. And the reason why we need to test data scenarios is to make sure that the prior is not influencing the data in a way that is not that is biased, for example, or yeah. that doesn't allow us to escalate. The prior itself wouldn't allow us to escalate to the last dose level. So we need to run these. And these this can be very heavy in terms of programming because effectively the more flexible you make it, the harder it is to simulate a trial under these rules. And what we do with the operating characteristics, we simulate trials, say usually 500, and that's how we define how many trials we are getting the targeting rate, the rate right, are defining an overdose or an underdose or trials stop early, for example. And all of this is very heavy from a pro- programmatic standpoint. From a programmatic standpoint. Yeah, so being but, the studies, the protocol itself is already quite a big of programming. Yes, yeah. And I guess you could say that either at that stage or at the stage of the SAP, but for us, it's mostly at the protocol stage. We put all the operating characteristics and the data scenarios in the protocol so mm-hmm. that it's clear that with uh, what we did and that it the prior we have works well. And this brings us to what I think is the main challenge in using measurement statistics, it's the prior, because we need effectively need to translate clinical information, and we have either need to look at the literature or have information from the clinicians that, and then transform that into prior distributions. And that is naturally something that I personally find it's, it's the hardest thing to do in Bayesian, and perhaps the biggest hurdle in terms of using Bayesian statistics, because Statisticians can very easily get the programming and understanding visual statistics. That's very easy. But then getting information from an article or from a clinician which says, oh, I think the DLT rate at 20 micrograms will be 40%. And that DLT rate at 50 micrograms is going to be 60%. 
And then yeah. you need to grab that information and say, I think my prior probabilities or my prior distribution for the DLTL rate is this. And that is what makes what I think is hard and the greatest challenge when you're starting with Bayesian. Yeah, the prior elicitation topic is, That's is correct. definitely yeah. a big one. Very good. By the way, Miguel will also present at the Effective Statistician Academy that is coming up. So if you haven't heard about this academy yet, then I would say, hey, head over to the academy, the conference yet, then head over to the Effective Statistician landing page, our homepage, and check out and register for this. The conference will take place on April 25th of 2022. Three. As we are recording this, we are at the end of 2022, and I'm really excited about this. And then you will not only hear what Miguel has to say about patient statistics, but you will also see a lot of these kind of different things. And you probably get with a couple of these things that we talked about posterior and then prior distribution and these the probabilities that something is bigger than whatsoever it's sometimes easier to see. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and check out the Effective Statistician Conference. It's great to have Miguel presenting there. Thank you for having me. It's good fun. Yeah, it will be fun. It will be It will be a pretty nice event. We have so many speakers, great speakers lined up. Can't wait to get to it. Okay, very good. In terms of Bayesian statistics, is there any key things that you would see as a listener to take away from the call today? One thing is the in the 3 plus 3, starting with the 3 plus 3, it's still used very widely in oncology, and it's also known to be a very suboptimal methodology. And even though people might not want to invest the time to learn the BLRM or model the model-based approaches, there are other approaches that can be used, like the MTPI2 or the BOIN, B-O-I-N, which is, that one is effectively Bayesian 2, that can be used as a transition to methodologies which are more optimal in terms mm. of defining the MTD. But in terms of Bayesian, the thing, what I think is uh, useful to know is that there is a lot of value in using Bayesian methodology in trials in general. And effectively, one very well-known trial used the Bayesian methodology, and that is the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine study, first publication yeah. they did. And this was a phase one, two, three trial. That was a Bayesian methodology, not a, not a Bayesian logistic regression, but a, a different method. And that it seems to be, the trend seems to be that Bayesian methods are going to be used more often because there are a lot of advantages with, in terms of operating characteristics and flexibility and ease of use and also by being intuitive. So I think people, and I don't think that there is a battle between frequentist statisticians and Bayesian statisticians. I don't see myself as a Bayesian statistician. I do Bayesian or I do a frequentist me method when it's appropriate. Completely agree. It's about using the right tool at the right time and not be dogmatic about it. Exactly, because I think there's a lot of value in using Bayesian early stage development because you have small sample sizes. But then as you get to phase three, where the sample sizes are much larger and you want to have more control of the operating characteristics, where a prior doesn't have that much influence, probably using frequentist methods are probably a better option for many different reasons. It's more about using the most appropriate approach rather than saying, I just do Bayesian or I just do frequentist methods. Yeah. And so that's a great way to actually end the episode today. Enrich your tool set. If you're working in these areas, get to know about all these kind of different things and tune in 
for the Effective Statistician Conference on April 25th. Thanks so much, Miguel. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you very much. This was amazing. I don't get tired of speaking about operations. <laughs> don't forget to register for the upcoming conference, the Effective Statistician Conference, where Miguel and many others will present about their research and how you can be a really, really good statistician. I actually renewed my membership very, very early in 2023 already. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS, who helped with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.